The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Carol and I have had a wonderful time this season doing what we call deep dives into specific pieces or specific topics. And one of the things we've wanted to talk together about, and you're welcome to listen in if you like, is the history and our ongoing love of film music. What do you think, Carol? I'm thrilled to talk about this. This is uh, one of my favorite subjects. It's kind of my, um, I say it's like my anti-classical music. It's classical music that doesn't demand the same listening. I, I will say every, um, the people ask what I listen to in my free time, and it's rarely opera or symphonic music. I mean, there are times that I do yeah. want to hear, you know, some real, you know, down and dirty Mahler or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I come home and I just don't want to have to hear in this, with my classical ears. So I put this on and it's, I put film music on. I have a bunch of playlists that I've created on Spotify and that's just my wind down music. It's the kind of music where the craft and the skill is evident, but it's got a different job to do, doesn't it? It's music that is meant to support something quite literally, right. to, to, to depict, to, to enhance something else. So you can listen to it and not be required to engage in the same sort of scholastic way that we do for work. I will say, I think I told you this story. One of the things I loved to do with my playlists is put them on when I'm cooking. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, if you're playing, if I'm playing my epic movie soundtrack, then suddenly like chopping garlic, I'm like, I'm going to save the world with this garlic. I mean, yeah. it's, <laughs> it makes everything I do epic. Carol listens to the Avengers when she chops garlic. That's. I the... mean, it's true. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the history of film music, because it's actually an interesting history. And, you know, especially compared to the other kinds of music we normally deal with in our daily lives, a very short, a very compact and wild history. Yeah. How did it start? It started, you know, back in the 1890s to 1929. That's like the early days of silent film. Yeah. Obviously, there was no recorded sound. So everything was done live by a pianist or by an organist. Um, sometimes small ensembles. Sometimes too. small ensembles. Yeah. Small ensembles. <laughs> sometimes small ensembles. <laughs> and um, it's it's interesting. There's it wasn't always written down too. Some some, and I think you mentioned some examples earlier, and we'll let you go through there. Sometimes someone write the actual music, but uh, well, Chaplin a lot of, did some of that. I think he wrote City Lights himself. Yeah. Right. So it's actually a a score that exists, Mm -hmm. but then you have a lot of silent films that didn't come with music. And so you had these ensembles or these uh, soloists who were versed in the art of improvisation and they would just create in the moment. Obviously, they probably saw the film and got familiar with what they needed to um, highlight, but they created it as an improvisatory art. I had the opportunity to see a Harold Lloyd double feature at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, which is Mm -hmm. an old movie house that was saved from extinction, so to speak, by um, David Packard of Hewlett Packard. And he had this passion for silent films. It, uh, the two Harold Lloyd films I, we watched didn't, they weren't ones that had extant scores. So the organist on one of those mighty Wurlitzers with all the sound effects, a beautifully restored organ, improvised the whole thing. And, between the two features, he did a little lecture recital, and he talked about 
how he did this. So he talked about the music you might use when there's danger, as opposed to like at this one moment that the husband and wife are saying goodbye and they would kiss at the door and there was a little Tweety bird <laughs> or a little barking dog. There are all these sound effects that yeah. are on the Wurlitzer. And it was just really fun to watch how that was created. Almost like a contemporary drive time radio show. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, with coconuts. Clop, yeah, clop, clop, clop. Exactly. Before we leave the silent film era, I want to ask you, Carol, because you are a pianist with a, with a prolific and encyclopedic catalog of music in your head. Can you imagine doing this? Can you imagine sitting there and watching a film and reacting to it in real time like these artists did? You know, I would have originally said no. Yeah. But then I realized when I'm doing recitative, when I'm playing recitative, that is an improvisatory art. And I don't consider myself a great improviser. But when you're accompanying recitative. To, to dramatic beats. Yeah, you're watching things yeah. happen. And if it happens a little bit differently, mm -hmm. you're creating music to accompany that. Mm -hmm. And so I guess in a way, maybe if I had all, you know, the practice of doing it, I could have done these kind of films. Uh, kind of a fun uh, little timeline, alternate timeline. We might have to do a ghost light live with Carol accompanying a silent film, but to, <laughs> to be determined and to be scheduled. So, all right. So what's next after the silent film era? Well, so then we have what you could call, and I, you know, we kind of got these delineations mm -hmm. off of, you know, just a, a sort of. A um, little bit of research. Yeah. A little bit of research. Yeah. We have what we, that what's sometimes called the golden age of film scores. And this is like 1930s to 1950s. Mm -hmm. This is when uh, talkies. You know, we're finally happening. Right. Singing in the Rain tells you all about how that comes into you. And we're not even going to talk about movie musicals in this, no. in this episode. That's a, that's a total, entirely different show. <laughs> See, I told you. How many times do we say it's a different show? Yeah. Um, but this, these were some of, I mean, a lot of the composers were European expats. Yeah. For instance, Eric Wolfgang von Kongold yeah. was a composer who had to flee because of political strife in Europe of the 30s. And he came to Hollywood and discovered that his European craft could be put to good use mm -hmm. scoring films of these epic, you know, the sea, uh, Seahawk. Uh, and then the most popular one, of course, is um, The Adventures of Robin Hood, yeah, exactly. the Errol That's, Flynn film. Right. Uh, and Gold has is a prolific classical composer. He has opera under his belt. Mm -hmm. He has chamber music, concertos. There's a beautiful concerto for violin. Yeah, it's wonderful. But most people know him for these great symphonic scores. Yeah. And then what are some other composers? Yeah, Miklos Rotza, Max Steiner, um, uh, the... Uh, the Gone with the Wind, that epic theme. We all know that epic yeah, theme. Yeah, and um, Bernard Herrmann. And I mean, there's all, these, there's all these people with this European training, with this very serious European training that brought that ethic to film scoring. So I, I hesitate to think what would have happened to film music had not all these European expats come to the U.S., and found work in Hollywood because there just wasn't much else for them. And right. I, can you imagine where we, we would be right now? I, it, it might have gone very differently. This, you know, we, we wanted to talk about the difference between a soundtrack and a, and a score. Soundtracks being based upon songs. Right, based, licensed songs. Songs that exist or songs, songs that but, are, yeah. yeah, are bespoke songs. Yeah. And that's kind of the next trend that we get into. We start to see more of that, like The Graduate, that great right. film of the 60s. It's all um, licensed music. Right. You know. Uh, the character name. Yeah. Simon and Garfunkel, Mrs. Robinson. Exactly. And then you had a lot of, um, you started to see more American style scores. I think of um, kind of more um, jazz influences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you even look at early John Williams, and we'll talk more about John Williams later, but some of his early scores are very small in scale, like the Reavers. It's a film we don't know, but this, I know the score. I don't know the film at all. Yeah. Uh, a very lyrical, very sort of folksy. And then Sugarland Express has a lot of jazz right. to it. Right. Of course, then we run into things like um, 
I wrote here that that was a, a move away from that grand symphonic European sound. One of the really great subjects to talk about is Stanley Kubrick's great film, oh, yeah. 2001, A Space Odyssey. Really that, fascinating. That was a real pivot point, I think, in, in, in movie scoring, because when that film was being produced, um, Stanley Kubrick had engaged Alex North to write the score for it. He was working on it, and while Kubrick was working on his part of the job, you know, making, get, getting, the, getting the cinematography and filming done, he had some stand-in pieces. Temp tracks is what they yeah, call them, exactly. temporary tracks. And this exactly. is a common practice in film scoring. Very common. It's, um, it's still done today. It's, it's how um, a director kind of shows the vision for the film exactly. with, a, with the composer, the music that they want. Exactly. They use these temp tracks right. and their extant classical music right. or whatever that he just puts in. In fact, when I've seen, I saw um, Patriot Games in... Um, as a studio screening before it was released, mm-hmm. the, it was a, a Tom Clancy film with Harrison Ford, and it was all temp tracks. And the score was completely different when it was finally done in theatrical release. And so temp tracks. So that's a little side note on temp tracks. This is not unusual. Not However, a, this had a different well, outcome. It definitely had a different outcome, and it, and it provides an opportunity to experience a, a, an iconic movie in two different ways right. that really, really makes the case for how important the score is. So Kubrick has... The beginning of also Sprock Zarathustra by Strauss. He's got um, uh, the Blue Danube. He's got this music by Ligeti, the atmospheres. And he fell in love with all of these temp tracks to and- the extent that he decided not to use Alex North's score, something Alex was not made aware of until the premiere, which is in what an unbelievably poor taste on <laughs> Kubrick's part. But Kubrick went on to use existing music for other films as well. He, he did it in Clockwork Orange. He did it in several of his other projects. And it became like a real, I think, uh, habit of his to take this existing music and put it through this new visual filter of his and kind of change the way you thought of it. William Tell can never be seen the same after Clockwork Orange. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, poor Alex North, you can actually go on Spotify and find Alex North's original score and listen to yeah. it and imagine seeing this film with that sound. It's a wonderful score, but I'm it's sorry, yeah. it just it just doesn't work because Strauss, both Strausses and Ligeti are um are are too much in our heads now. It's impossible to forget it. It's like the first recording you hear of a Mahler symphony or something. That's the sound that's always going to be there for you, and it'll never be quite the same. But but it, it on its own is a great score. It is a wonderful score, and I and I. I I hate that Alex North was was treated that poorly, but he wasn't the only one because uh, Kubrick was actually sued by Georgie Ligeti because he did not have permission to use atmospheres, <laughs> and they went to good court job, Stanley. Over it. They went to court over it. It didn't. It didn't. Um, he, I think he stayed in the public domain after that. But it's an interesting. It's an like I said before. It's an interesting way of comparing two versions of the same concept and having completely different movies appear in your head. Yeah, you know, and also um, there's some other pieces that have become super iconic as film tracks. Carmita Burana, yep. the, the um, O Fortuna. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times we've seen that in glory? And mm-hmm. then, of course, it's shown up in any number of trailers. And trailer music is another whole thing. But then also um, Adagio, Adagio for Strings. For strings. Yep. No one can, from yep. a, of a certain age, yep. can think of that piece without thinking of you Platoon. You think of Willem Dafoe with his arms outstretched. I mean, that's the visual when you hear that music. Right, or Apocalypse Now and the mm-hmm. Ride of the Valkyries. Absolutely. I mean, so much extant symphonic music that that was that appeared in films so that brings us to kind of the next 
phase in film music, as you will. And um, this is where we get to our friend John Williams, who yep. I think is just uh, he's single handedly, I think, responsible for bringing the symphonic sound back to film. He, he started and confirmed a new golden age by himself. And I think we still live in that golden mm-hmm. age with uh, with a lot of asterisks, yeah. and we'll talk totally. about that. But totally. really, um, uh, I think anybody again of a certain age, and you were there, I was there. Robert's too young, our producer. <laughs> we saw that first release of Star Wars, absolutely in 1977. 1977. It was. And a- does anyone not think of that 20th Century Fox? Musical logo yeah. that goes directly yeah. into that opening fanfare. I know. and uh, I get goosebumps just thinking about you it. You and I both agreed it was one of the first LPs that we made our parents mm-hmm. buy for us because we were just dying to hear that music on a regular basis. And I, I, listened, I wore that record out. The first second I could buy a CD of it in 1984, I did and mm-hmm. wore that out too. And now I'm, I've, I've been known to track it down on Spotify now. So I've lived through all of the ages, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I, I think, I mean, John Williams, and I think the stories we could, again, we could talk about John Williams and his, he's, uh, everyone who I know has met him says he's an outstanding human being. He's still composing. He made it. I was thinking, you know, he's in his late 80s now. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking, was he going to make it through the Star Wars saga? I mean, I'm not trying to curse John Williams. No, he know. seems to be in great health. But, you know, he made it all the way through. And can you imagine if someone else had had to finish out that saga? He's, he's been able to live long enough to see his acolytes make their name in the business, too, which I think is really fun. There's so many new voices now. And I mean, maybe not so new, but compared to him, I mean, we're talking about Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have, at least in the industry, you know, a footprint as big as John's. And I think it's because of him, though, that they even got that opportunity. Absolutely. And then, you know, Hans Zimmer is another person who is creating his own acolytes. Lots of people have come through exactly. his his work and yeah. have gone on to do, you know, things. I think feel like Michael Giacchino might be a, mm-hmm. a devotee, a disciple of Hans Zimmer. So then you get kind of into the modern era of film music. And it, it's um, this one website referred to it as the kitchen sink era. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have those great symphonic soundtracks still being created. They're definitely still being created, but it's interesting to me, Carol, who's actually creating them now. You're getting people from other walks of musical life. Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, has made a huge name for himself as a as a film score. He's a, yeah, he's an award winner now. The Social um, Network is kind of the one that put him on the map. Absolutely, and now you've got Johnny Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. He's written two of the best scores of this current year that we're in. Power of the Dog. I hope he wins for that. I think it's a magnificent piece. You've got uh, Johan Johansson, this Icelandic fellow who just unfortunately passed away very recently, but he wrote the score for Arrival, this incredible sound installation. That's one of the fascinating aspects of current film score thought is that it doesn't have to be music per se. It can be a, a sonic character in a way that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think that movie embodies that. Zimmer does that a little bit in a lot of his Chris Nolan projects. Well, Dunkirk. Yeah. Do you uh, recall how that ticking watch mm-hmm. figures throughout Dunkirk? Yeah. And then when the ships, the boats finally come over from England, we have that weird stretched out version of um, of Nimrod from yeah. the Elgar variations that exactly. he's manipulated and uh, made almost unrecognizable, except that yeah. because I know the piece, I was like, wait, that's Nimrod. But, and he, yeah. he creates his own sound world in things like um, Dune with found instruments with, exactly. um, and I, um, there was a fabulous documentary, which I found for a while called 
the score. Mm-hmm. And it features all of these people. Talks a lot about Hans Zimmer. I think, you know, it shows him in a studio out in the desert and he's got this old rickety piano. I can't remember what score he's working on this piano that he got out of a junkyard and he's making sounds on it to just create this weird sonic world for whatever film that was. He, um, most recently in Dune, we see all sorts of, he had that, uh, there's a, there's a woman that improvises vocal utterances throughout the movie Dune to mm-hmm. kind of create that alien world of Arrakis. I feel bad, actually. I'm just thinking back to our symphonic things. We didn't even mention James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, we, there's so many names there's we just missed. There's too many names, yeah. Uh, just, and um, as we talk about Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan, there's some other power couples oh, in yeah. the film. Absolutely. Things. I mean, it's, 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 it started with David Lean and Maurice Schar. I mean, it's— it, Well, even before that, Hitchcock and Herman. Hitchcock and Herman. Um, obviously, Spielberg and Williams. I mean, come on. Um, uh, uh, Danny Elfman and Tim Burton. Tim Burton. You know, we talked about Hans Zimmer, his relationship with Chris Nolan, but also now with Danny Villeneuve. I mean, there's just tons of these, like you said, Hollywood musical power couples that are creating these incredible things together. And I, I, I'm sure that these directors, when they start these projects, just immediately assume that their that their partner in crime musically is just going to join in. They probably conceive of these movies with those sounds already in their head. I'm sure of that, especially with someone like Spielberg. I see the names I always see with him are John Williams Mm -hmm. and Janusz Kaminski, his cinematographer. You know, he's obviously found his recipe that works, his recipe for success. Obviously, West Side Story, he didn't have the opportunity to have John Williams score that. But um, because that was obviously already done. And then the arrangements done by David Newman of the Newman dynasty. That's Mm -hmm. a whole Mm -hmm. film dynasty of decades. So yeah, it's just a fascinating world. Hey, Jeff, to wrap up, um, let's talk about some of our favorites. I think yours are going to be a little more esoteric. Our favorite film scores that I want, that we want to make sure people kind of explore through Spotify. We've We've both talked about how Star Wars was seminal. Yeah. But is what's your favorite John Williams soundtrack? Gosh. I'm sorry. Score. Yeah. Make sure we call it the right thing. Of course. Of course. I mean, obviously Star Wars is incredible and it's, it, it created a world that made all of the rest of this possible for these composers and these filmmakers and us as audience members. So you're right. That has to be put on a separate shelf and sort of taken out of this category. But some of his other scores like Born on the Fourth of July, (sighs) incredible. Um, The score to Lincoln, incredible. And the finals, the the whole um, conversation scene in Close Encounters at the Third Kind. Absolutely. Close Encounters was what I was going to mention next. You read my mind. Uh, to me, that is some of the best music he ever wrote. I also think E.T. walks on water. I mean, just perfection. I, I love the, the, the anecdote about the last 25 minutes of E.T. Generally, film composers cut their music to fit the film. Mm-hmm. But Steven Spielberg was so moved by the last 25 minutes of that score, which is a continuous piece of music, that he recut the ending of E.T. Yep. to fit yep. the, the music. That That's he what I mean about so the evocative. relationship between so those two goosebumps men. just yeah. thinking about it. Absolutely. These. And, you know, beyond that, I definitely want people to pay attention to the score of The Power of the Dog that Johnny Greenwood just wrote this year. That movie's going to get a lot of Oscar attention. I love the score to Arrival. I think it's fantastic. And. I'm just going to mention this one thing that Hans Zimmer did because we swore we wouldn't talk about Disney movies because they're <laughs> their own thing. And it's, you know, all of the, all of the popular songwriting that mixes in with the orchestral scoring. There are moments in Lion King that Hans Zimmer did that are better than any of the songs. The moment yes. where Simba takes Pride Rock at the very end, he's oh just defeated Scar. Yes. That swell of orchestral triumph is just 
one of the greatest moments in film music history for me and one of the best things Hans Zimmer ever did. What about you? What's your list? Well, um, I've just already mentioned I'm very John Williams specific. Mm-hmm. I loved I don't have I have so many favorites of his, but I really um had the opportunity to play synthesizer part a couple of times now recently with the live movies that the Utah Symphony is doing. Yeah. Live film scores. And the first one I did was Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park is a kind of seminal movie for me in my growth anyway. There was something about it. I don't know if it was my childhood passion for paleontology or whatever, but I the movie, the film itself meant a lot to me. And well, then that when I photorealistic to, CGI uh, changed everything for a lot of us. Right. I mean, it was impossible to forget yeah. how those animals looked. So when Sorry I got to, to play you. that, no, so yeah. when I got to play that score, I just, I swear to you, I have not ever had goosebumps like I've had when I heard Arch Principal Trumpet Travis Peterson play the opening, the da 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 da, you know. So that's a moment for me. I love as far as action films go, and those tend to be what I love the most. I love How to Train Your Dragon by John Powell. It is a delightful, exciting, thrilling thing. And I knew the score for years, and I only just this summer watched the film. Yeah. And it's they amazing. Are fun. They are fun. Those... And then I love some of those, uh, those uh, Hans Zimmer, those um, evocative things like Arrival and what's, um, what's the name of the film, the, 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 the space travel one? Interstellar. Interstellar. Yeah. yeah, that's got some great like organ minimalist stuff in yep. it. I love yeah. that. And I love the soundtrack to The Mandalorian, which is TV. We didn't even talk about TV, but yeah. uh, Ludwig Jorensen. Yeah. It's great stuff. So now that we've both set our list, I, oh, I, I have- Oh, and Lawrence to... of Arabia. Can't ever forget Lawrence of Arabia. I'm sorry that sorry. I cut you off because that's <laughs> definitely worth mentioning. But now that we've both set our list, I have to mention, of course, the greatest film score of all time that trumps all of the rest of these, including John Williams. I'm sorry. It is a man who just passed away. Uh, Ennio Morricone, The Mission. Ah. One of the greatest scores, period. It, 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 it makes that movie, for me, one of my Desert Island treats. I love that film so much. And a big reason is because of that score. And I'm sorry that we didn't mention Morricone earlier. His westerns and everything he did in the U.S. is just seminal in terms of, you know, the direction that film scoring went. I mean, I mentioned... Um... Uranson, his music mm-hmm. is directly affected by the Western yep. sound uh, scores of Morricone because yep. Mandalorian is essentially a space Western. Exactly. So what did we we mentioned? Arrival. Yep. How to Train Your Dragon. Yep. Jurassic Park. Star Wars. A million John Williams things, including The Power of the Dog. Yep. The Power of the Dog, and also the Mission. And the Mission. So there's your list of things to look at on whatever your streaming service is. They also happen to be really good movies, so watch them. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Well, it's uh, and we didn't even mention part of this comes out of we Jeff and I both have this love for film scores, but Jeff uh, and we have a love for the art of film. But Jeff is has a, a side hustle. Yeah, my side hustle is I'm an accredited film critic, so I have a review show that I do for a radio station in Jackson Hole, where I split time between here, there and here in Salt Lake. And uh, as part of my life in film, I had the opportunity the last two years to be a judge on a panel uh, for the for the original score competition in a nature film uh, festival, which has been really incredible. So I've gotten to experience film scoring as, uh, as an adjudicator trying to decide which composers are matching the director's vision best. So I've been able to immerse in this in a way that's really fun. And I, one thing I find about nature films is so often 
they default towards what I call musical clip art, just mm-hmm. these sort of downloadable mood pieces that don't mean a whole lot, that whenever a composer seems to be really diving in and trying to participate in what the film's got to say, those are the ones that get my attention the most. So that's been a real honor and a fascinating process. Yeah, you know, one of the things about this life journey is that we just never stop adding to our skill set and exploring new things. I mean, if you do, I'm getting very very philosophical, but, you know, if you do, you might as well be done. Yep. I mean, yep. that's the thing that's keeping me just always discovering. My love of film, Carol, makes me a better thinker about music and vice versa. The two things really do go hand in hand because they are, you know, they're both a performing art in a sense. So I don't think it's really all that far afield for me to be interested in movies. Well, uh, this has been super fun to just talk about this. It's great. I'd love to hear, you know, those of you who are listening, I'd love to hear what your favorites are. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we'll agree. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Be sure to visit usuo.org for information about upcoming performances. We hope to see you soon for a live performance, whether of an opera, of symphonic works, or of one of our films. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.